Welcome to CPF Firewire, a podcast from California professional firefighters where we discuss a wide range of issues affecting firefighters, our unions, our families, and the communities we serve. Hello and welcome to another edition of CPF Firewire. My name is Carol Wills and I'm the Senior Communications Consultant and I'm here with uh, CPF President Brian Rice. Brian, welcome to your podcast. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks, Carol. Good to be here. Um, We thought it would be a good opportunity to provide uh, the membership with kind of an update on some of the things that are happening here at, uh, at CPF, both in terms of legislative issues and also in terms of uh, how things are going with our, uh, some of our affiliates and some of the issues that they are facing. I wonder if we could start maybe by talking a little bit about uh, an issue that has been front of mind for uh, a not inconsiderable number of our members, and that's uh, workers' compensation. Uh, I mean, obviously, um, uh, firefighters, because of the job that they do, uh, have, um, have have much more exposure to the workers' comp system, and there are a number of presumptions that have been established on, on things like cancer, uh, post-traumatic stress, heart and lung, um, a variety of, uh, of, of, of presumptions. Um, but what we've found, it seems, is that having the presumption has uh, has has become something uh, something of a problem for local governments, and some of our members are starting to face unexpected consequences when they make when they go to make those presumptive claims. Uh, talk a little bit about that about that issue. What what we're hearing from the members? It's you know what, Carol. It's it's really interesting. You know, California was gra- was the groundbreaker. Um, and CPF for any kind of presumptive, whether it was cardiac, cancer, um, respiratory um, issues, um, infectious disease. And when they first came out, um, we were very effective. Our members uh, had uh, cancer cases and um, they were handled relatively quickly and they were um, benefited you know, in a very uniform manner. But unfortunately, you know, we have a generation of firefighters now that have never seen how a presumptive is truly supposed to work because the insurance companies and the third-party administrators have figured out how to, quite frankly, almost negate our presumptives. And their whole pattern is wait for them to give up or wait for them to die. You know, I'd like to think, you know, even as an insurance company, they're human beings and would go more towards the wait till we give up. Um, But we're seeing the latter. We're we're seeing members pass away from cancers, from cardiac issues, and have their loved ones still trying to deal with a workers' comp case after they're dead. And these are cases, these really are cases where there's no doubt at all that that the illness falls under the presumption law. A hundred percent. They, what the insurance companies and the third-party administrators, what they've figured out, you know, they have a 90-day period that is supposed to be the acceptance or a denial period. And and I would understand that under um, a straight workers' comp injury. Um you know, I don't. Doesn't mean I like it, but I understand it. But on a presumptive, it means that the employer has the burden to prove that this did not disease or injury happen at work. But what we've evolved into is the employers just saying no. 
through the insurance company. And in one case, one of the uh, comp attorneys, our expert that is working with us on legislation, um, 22 of the 24 presumptive cases that he has on his desk today are denied and not giving a reason straight denied. I think that fire chiefs and fire administrators have forgotten that the insurance company and the third party administrator, you don't work for them, they work for you. And when you have a member that comes down with a cancer diagnosis or a member that um, has a cardiac event um, or a respiratory event or a communicable disease that are infectious disease that is covered, put them on comp. Make the insurance company um, do their job, which is you have an obligation to prove that this didn't come from the job. And, you know, many of our fire chiefs, have, in my opinion, kind of, it's just like a, a generation of firefighters. We have a generation of fire, fire chiefs that have never had to do that and stand up and say, no, the buck stops here. This member has whatever it is, Hodgkin's, non-Hodgkin's lymphoma, you know, um, small cell or large cell um, cancer. It's a, it's a presumptive cancer. They're on workers' compensation and will be benefited that way. And it is up to you, the third-party administrator, to demonstrate that is not the case. And, you know, we've shifted back, and that burden is now um, being felt by our members when when they should just, you know, their focus should be, I have cancer or I have had a cardiac event. My focus should be getting better, rehabilitation, and getting back to work or unfortunately or potentially being retired, whichever is the most appropriate. Instead, you know, they're facing months and sometimes years of battle when they should be healing and sick, getting better sick sick men and women who are who are having to 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 spend as much time uh, or more time working on just getting compensated as they are on getting better A absolutely and we're not talking about you know one off cancers and we've seen those but we're we're talking about the cancers that are killing us you know, the colon cancer, um, colorectal cancer, thyroid cancers, testicular cancers, the ones that are known. You know, we, we still see lung cancer. We don't see it as much anymore. But any of the bloodborne um, multiple myeloma, um, any of the leukemias, it, it is so um, obvious in, in your exposure to known carcinogenic products, not questionable, known and accepted by um, the World Health Organization or the government, but still, you know, we get these denials. And I've gone through um, logbook and um, um, exposure reports with members over the years where you can demonstrate, um, you know, between 20 and 40 exposures per year to known carcinogenic products and still received a denial. And, and over in this one instance, it was over a 20-year career. We were able to, to show those over and over and over and still had to fight. And that's why, um, you know, CPF and all of our member locals and all of our members, we're putting the flag in the ground enough 
is enough. Right. So what are what are what are some of the things? I mean, obviously, CPF has been working on legislation with this particular issue in mind. Maybe talk a little bit about what CPF has been working on legislatively and and how hard we plan to to push on this. This this the workers' comp reform legislation. Um, we worked last year, and we were unable to get it through the insurance committee, and that was headed by assembly member Tom Daly out of Orange County. And, you know, we should be able to talk about these things openly, and assembly member Daly, um, as I sat through that committee process, in my opinion, was a very strong representative of the insurance companies and the insurance industry, and not a representative of workers. Now, we had some strong members in there, starting with Assembly Member Jim Cooper um, and others, but that discussion in and of itself, we never cleared committee, so we never, you know, we never got to the other house. Um, it never made it to the governor for consideration. This year, we've come back with SB 1127. It is now in print, and it is the same workers' compensation reform that we pursued last year. We want to go back to insurance companies seeing the same um, penalty and fining schedule that puts the pressure on them to act appropriately. We are going to try to reduce the 90-day uh, period. I would want it at a 30-day, but I don't. What I want in my head and what is practical is is not necessarily the case. But what we're talking about really is kind of rolling back some of those so-called reforms that were instituted during the Schwarzenegger and, and and Brown years that basically sort of created the playing field that allowed this kind of gaming of the system. Right? Absolutely, to um, begin eliminating that and wiping it out and putting, quite frankly, um, the injured firefighter first. And one of the major developments in this, and our major sponsor on this bill, is a pro tem of the Senate, Tony Atkins. Senator Atkins um, has been a guest on this podcast. Has been a guest on this podcast. Um, have I personally have developed a, a, a very strong working relationship with her on behalf of the men and women um, of the CPF, and and quite frankly. Um, the only other sponsor you could get on this bill that is in a position um, as strong as hers or more would be the governor. And we're doing, you know, for me, for CPF, I'm done. I am so tired of seeing our members um, injured and ill and getting no relief. And to have the pro tem see the problem, understand the problem, and be willing to carry our bill. Um, I can't put it into words how important that is. Relationships matter. Working relationships matter. Politics matter. And, and if you're listening to this podcast, please don't take this as a sure thing. It, we still have a major lift. And even with the pro tem, we have, Tony and I, Senator Atkins and I have a major lift to do together, but I can tell you we will work our tails off um, to, to make that lift happen. I, and if you can't tell, yes, I'm pumped. Um, I'm pretty excited about it. And I've always said, 
you know, as a president of the CPF, I want the tailboard firefighter and their family to know what this organization is doing on their behalf to make that kind of a difference. And SB 1127 will make that kind of a difference. And we're going to be turning to our members for help at the appropriate time. You will see it in the local union uh, leadership alerts, you know, whether we ask for letters of support um, to your local um, assembly and Senate folks, you know, we will be leaning on the membership hard um, to make this happen. Tell us your stories. I mean, you know, if, you, if you've had this experience, let us know because we can put that in front of the policymakers. Exactly. I was a 30-year firefighter and I have the credentials and I have the experience to back that up. But even having that, it is not as important as the men and women on the job today telling their story. That is such a credible um, piece of this whole process. As we move... Um, this bill through our state capitol, through the Assembly and the Senate. It's the men and women in uniform that have the story to tell. You, you men and women are the difference makers. Another area where we're starting to see more and more stories, uh, more and more uh, in particular horrors, I guess you could call them horror stories, uh, is in the issue, on the issue of uh, of paramedic wait times. Uh, I mean, this is something that uh, this so issue of so-called wall time where where uh, paramedics are basically stuck at the hospital um, waiting for the, the hospital to take the patients. Uh, I mean, I've been with the organization long enough to remember it goes going back at least a decade uh, as, uh, as, as an issue. And obviously it's become more, uh, more front of mind uh, in the wake of what's happened with uh, with COVID. Talk a little bit about how we've seen this this problem escalate and the degree to which it's become really a crisis for a lot of our members who are who are frontline paramedics. It's an absolute crisis from border to border in the state of California. There is not one community that is not affected by the wall time issue. And it's interesting, the CPF, what, where we started and what we're doing today and the differences that we are making. We are working um, hand, hand in hand, we have to, with the Cal Chiefs and the Metro Chiefs because this is, this is a chief officer's issue. It seems like over the years, a lot of places just want labor to do their job. I mean, I'll just... that it. I'll, that's I've seen it. I've been in that position, and I think I'm calling it true to what it has been. But we are together on this now, and we are pushing. And there's a couple of things that I think are important to know. Um, we have a relationship, and we're working with the um, California Hospital Association and their CEO, Carmela Coyle. And we are working at the highest levels with the Department of Public Health, Secretary Mark Galley, and then uh, the state EMSA, um, the interim director, director Liz Bassnett. And we have involved um, uh, a couple of fire administrators to come up with some fixes now that could make a difference from now and for the next 90 days. And um, some of them you're starting to see, um, you know, the consolidation of uh, you know, four patients being overwatched by one paramedic. Um, 
being able to, um, we're not there yet, but being able to be in a position to do paramedic initiated refusals as appropriate. Um, also, um, alternate uh, destination or alternate care destinations. There's a lot of things in play. Fire service EMS has never had the seat at the table that we have today. We are not going to fix this problem overnight because, Carol, as you said, it didn't start with COVID. It's been here for 10 years. And, you know, we have to work really, we have to stay diligent with, with our statewide policymakers that um, let's not use COVID as a free pass on this. I mean, the scope of the issue is, is it's, I mean, it, it's become impossible to ignore, but we're talking about ambulances lined up outside hospitals. And, you know, and in Sacramento, it came to a head uh, probably about six weeks ago. And um, my local fire chief, Todd Harms, who Sacramento Metro Fire, um, the Sacramento region is a fire-based EMS system. And there's probably, there's probably close to 50 fire department medics in service every day providing service. And that's augmented by um, one or two private providers, whether it's interfacility transport. And I know AMR has done some surge protection. But on a Friday afternoon, they came down to one ambulance in service in the entire county. And Chief Harms has had enough. And he got his battalion commander um, or excuse me, a shift commander and then his battalion chiefs and they dropped off cots at local hospitals and told them, um, we're transferring these patients and we're going to do it this way and I'm putting these ambulances back in service and it, 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 it kind of made a major ignition in the problem but one fire chief stood up and said enough is enough and all of a sudden this issue that we're all talking about gain not only local but national attention and the conversation has changed and we're starting to um, put some ideas forward that are getting genuine um, consideration and and one of them uh, in working with Dr. Galley and um, director inter, director of uh, EMSA Bassnet was you know we put a number of things forward and and these things need to be um, enacted from the Department of Public Health level at the, at the state and EMSA. We're done with the days of the LEMSAs um, doing what they want because that's 58, there's 58 counties, 58 LEMSAs. And we can't address problems like this if, if we give some of these folks options. I'm sorry, it's not gonna work. And it's not just for firefighters, you're talking about my kids. You're talking about my grandkids. You're talking about my parents. The people that make the 911 call when they need help. Is our system broken in a number of ways? Yes, it is. And I think that as we collectively begin to address some of that, um, we, we can work towards a system change. But right now with the wall time issue, it is a crisis. The people that need help when they call 911 are not getting it. And, you know, I am looking for in the next um, weeks to be able to see some of these fixes take hold in other areas in the state. I know that some of them have. Um, I believe DPH asked for, um, through FEMA, 22 medical teams. Initially, they got seven. I think they're up to 13 now. That augments um, the hospital staffing. 
The other part for us, we have to be really careful and not own their problem. You know, that's part of the tough love part of this. You created this. We can handle the 911 calls if you put yourself in a position, which you should, when our medic units show up to do an appropriate, quick reassess and patient pass on to allow us our job, which is, it always has been as a firefighter, EMT, or paramedic, your number one job, stabilize the problem and deliver that patient to the hospital in a condition that a higher level of medical care can increase their chances of survival. And hospitals are not doing that right now. They are woefully failing at it. And this is another area, this is an area it seems where um, the recent CPF legislation dealing with uh, uh, community paramedicine can also have an impact as well, right? I mean, if, if we're talking about finding ways to provide alternate destinations for folks. Absolutely. There are portions of community paramedicine that could be um, instituted relatively easily. And there are other pieces that are going to take more time. But one of them that we need to begin taking bites out of this apple is um, alternate destinations, whether it's a, a mental health facility or a sobering center, which we have the pilots, but quite frankly, men and women, our medics, we only have one place to go. It's the emergency room. And we, we transport a lot of patients that the emergency room isn't the most appropriate. If we had um, uh, a community clinic, and we have them in every, we have them in every city, um, that was um, within the system that we could take some of these non-emergent patients to, it's better for everybody, the ER doctors, the ER nurses, and the patient, because that's what this comes down to. Let's not forget that um, we as firefighter paramedics and professionals, we're not here um, solely to earn a living. Yes, that is part of what comes with the service we provide, but our, but our task and our sworn duty is to provide the best possible care and treatment to the citizens of California when they call us, whether it's a medical emergency, a trauma emergency, a rescue situation, or a fire. That's it. And we're really, really good at taking care of people in the field, and we're really, really good to transporting them to a higher level of um, medical treatment, the failure has happened when we arrive at the door, ready to give our patient to a trauma team, to a medical team. The hospitals have failed us. And in failing us as professional firefighters and paramedics, they're failing Californians. That's what's got to be fixed. Stick a pin in this issue. This is this one's not going <laughs> yeah, away. This one's not over. This one's not going away. Um, now, uh, recently, um, Governor Newsom uh, made an announcement that um, um, uh, some of the a lot of the uh, mask mandates and and some of the things that have been uh, in place uh, are are being lifted, and that California is looking more towards an uh, uh, kind of an endemic approach to uh, uh, to COVID nineteen. But yet. Um, Recently, legislation was introduced that would impose an employer mandate on uh, employers, public and private employers. Um, CPF has taken a pretty strong stand against that. Um, am I right? I think a pretty strong stand is uh, accurate. 
when I first heard about AB 1993, um, most of you won't remember. Carol, you'll remember the cartoons. Remember McGilla Gorilla? <laughs> the top of my <laughs> oh head my blew off. I was so angry. And it took me a minute, and you, you get that stuff compartmentized, and then you go to work. And what got me there, I, I'm like everybody. I, I think all of us want to be on the other side of COVID-19, COVID-Delta, COVID-Omicron. We've been there, we're doing that, and, and we want to see our lives go back. And in the course of this pandemic, when we started, um, none of us really knew what we were dealing with. And, and neither did our leadership, both scientific and medical, although they were putting it together. And as we went along, you know, and we realized that, you know, social distancing, masking, all those things um, were, were beginning to make a difference. At the CPF level, it has been such a journey. And, you know, when, when we, for me, I first learned about it, I was in Washington, D.C. on a lobbying um, trip, lobbying over our issues. And the first I heard of it was uh, uh, Vince Wells and Sean Caldor from San Jose Firefighters Local 230. They, they were ground zero for us in California. So that started the whole odyssey with this. And I'm, I'm giving you a long story, but, but it ties together. And as we started going through this, and we worked at the highest levels, legislatively with the governor, with his staff, with the Department of Public Health and Mark Galley, um, and trying to figure out what's the best way forward. Um, when the testing came out, the CPF through the foundation in um, trying to get our members tested as quickly as possible. Um, and we, we ran into all the issues everybody else was that we all forget, supply issues, this and that. Um, but one of the things that happened there was when the testing came out, firefighters and paramedics were not considered in the first tier. And so we legislatively went to bat. And so it wasn't for legislation, but it was the ledge team and the political team and myself um, to get firefighters and firefighter paramedics and EMTs considered critical um, to be tested when, when we um, uh, are exposed or if we become sick. And, you know, it's kind of interesting because it was initially healthcare workers. And, you know, everybody wants to go, well, you sit up straight and square your shoulders. We're firefighters, and we are, but men and women, we're frontline healthcare workers. Because when the shit hits the fan, who do people call? 911. And we've all been there. And so we had the discussions. We got our members in the testing phase. We weren't considered healthcare workers when the vaccine came out. So we had to go back and battle for that to make sure our members could be. Um, in the first year of vaccination. And then we realized that we, need to, we needed to get our members the most accurate um, medical and scientific information we could. So we started an education program. I can't tell you how many town halls. I know that one of them we did through the entire 10th district. We invited members and their families across uh, New Mexico, Arizona, California, and Hawaii to attend, and, and we got um, doctors from Stanford. Um, 
just across the spectrum, the best people that we could to talk about COVID, best way to protect and educate our members. And as we went through that, we, we as CPF came out with one message and, and we have stayed hard with it. And essentially the message is this, the CPF believes in the science and the efficacy of the vaccination. We believe that the best way out of the pandemic is to get vaccinated. That being said, um, if a mandate comes down or mandatory, local unions must have the ability to meet and confer over the impacts and effects. We have made sure that we have not varied from that message, and we have not. And to this day, I can tell you that well over 90 plus percent of the local unions in the CPF have an agreement with their employers that is um, either has a vaccinator test or um, exemptions, but nobody is lo losing their job. We have a handful of departments that are battling through it. Um, and we all know San Francisco's having a tough time. Um, LA City is, is, is there and has a tough time, and there are other departments that are working through it. There's always more to this than what's on social media and um, what's in the newspaper. There's also the behind-the-scenes story. Thousands of firefighters are not getting fired. Hundreds of firefighters are not getting fired. In my union experience, and you got to remember, I've dealt with some pretty hardcore things in the 2000s. This has been the most difficult thing to wade through because there's groups out there and people out there that, hey, we want to file a lawsuit, but with your money, you know, and there's local unions that are, have kicked ass. They have done a great job to protect their members. In fact, it's way over 90% of the CPF unions. And it's that getting, have actually sort of avoided a hard a hard yes, mandate. I mean, yes, they have that because they've been able to, to negotiate. They've avoided the imposition of mandates. Exactly. And so as we wind our way through this maze, and it is a maze, we come to um, a few weeks ago and the introduction of AB nineteen ninety three, which would be for public or private employers um, a mandate a vaccination mandate across the board. Yes, I blew my stack. And um, we have lodged our strong opposition with the author. I am, we are building a coalition of labor um, organizations. And by that, I mean trade union labor organizations. I have no interest in, um, nor will we, partner with anti-vaccination groups or any of this. This is a straight labor issue, period. And um, this is about, this is a, this goes really, doesn't it, uh, to the core issue of, of what unions are bargaining. about, which is having that seat at the table and conducting those negotiations. Yes. And for this past two years, the fire service unions in the state of California have either 100% accomplished it or they're still in the battle working on it. What we don't need is um, to have it legislated and come down through the legislature that this is um, now a statewide uh, mandate. And here's the interesting part, Carol. The California Highway Patrol and CAL FIRE 
would, I would consider those to be the governor's police department and the governor's fire department. Those two organizations are under a policy of vaccinator test. So there's no, so, there's no hard and fast so even, mandate there. Even the governor has not come down on that, including he um, sided with CCPOA, which is the correctional officers, to bring them out of kind of the, I don't, the federal prison. Um, they're in a completely different world. He's trying to bring them in and under the same policy that the CHP and CAL FIRE has. So our, our governor has demonstrated, whether people like to hear it or not, love him or hate him, um, he has demonstrated over and over that um, he's not putting this in place on public safety. Um, now I'll, I'll, I'll hear a lot, what about the children? What about you know our teachers? What about this? And, and I have my own opinions on those things. You elected me to represent you as a professional firefighter. That's the singular focus here. And if we do our job right, and I, I am bound and determined not to lose this on behalf of our members, 1993 will not become law. It undermines everything that a union stands for. Um, the meet and confer process to be able to sit down and meet with our employers in a meaningful way and come up with a fair and equitable solution or working conditions is is a core issue and a core value, and we will fight for that um, to no end. And that's what we're doing. But what that means, a lot of people, you know, some people out there will hear this, and and you know, they want to get the pitchforks and the torches. Um, they still sell those. <laughs> yeah, and there was a point <laughs> in my life when I was, and I've done it. Hey, man, I've I've taken a torch and I've taken pitchforks to people. Um, at this level. You're most effective when you recognize the feel of battle and you, um, you participate and you push your issue forward in that appropriate um, field. And, and it's different. Whether you want to hear this or not, it is different. Being a local union president was way different than being a CPF president or a CPF vice president or an IAFF 10th district, 10th district president. You have to really know um, the field you're working in and do it right. Because if you do it wrong, you will hurt more of your members than you will help. Right. And, but bottom line here is, is, is CPF and, and in particular local affiliates are taking that stand and make having those tough conversations and going to the mat to Absolutely. protect their employees. I, I, I have been very proud of local unions that um, have taken this issue head on, and and in many cases, Carol, um, at some of their leadership's own expense, being drugged through the mud and social media, um, being accused of being in somebody's pocket. And in a lot of these instances, I've met with the local leaders. I've met with members, and, and you know, you're not under any mandate. There is an agreement in place, and your local union has done the job for you. But we have another group of folks on the other side um, called the Freedom Foundation, and some of these anti-union people. And you, 
men and women, you don't have to go very far. Go on social media and look at the number of folks. Quit your union, you know, or, um, you know, links to show how to get out of the union. And... Um, a lot of it is emotion based, you know, in the whole and the Janice decision. There's a part of me, Carol, that, and I'm looking at it. Um, you know, should it be fair that you could be a Janice member but still be entitled to literally everything? You know, I I would, and I'm looking at it. if I can find a, a a way to do this, and you want to Janice out of the union, um, I would just like to have two things that you can't participate in if you're not a union member. Well, you can get the wages, you can get the retirement, you can get the benefits, you can get the hours off. I'm, I'm okay with that. There's two areas. You should not be entitled to the grievance and discipline process, and you should not be able to be entitled to participate in the seniority process. Just those two things, neither one of them monetary. You know, we'll see where that goes. That's a whole different thing, but there is a lot of movement in the state of California, emotions are high, everywhere. And um, it's usually, you know, everybody like, it's not politics, bullshit. It's 100% politics. It's 100% um, liberal, conservative, far right, far left. I don't know why we start that discussion. Most people on, a lot of people on here will go, well, he's, a, he's a liberal lefty. Well, that's not true. Depends on what the issue is. I've had a member ask me, you know, what's your true north? And um, if I'm standing in front of my family, my answer is a little bit different than when I'm representing you as a union member because my issues are different for you than they are with my family. And, you know, it's easy to be a keyboard cowboy on, uh, or cowgirl on social media, but when you have to consider everything and the harm that you may or may not do um, to your members professionally, because that's what I'm talking about, professionally, negatively impact um, their working conditions, negatively impact the salary they have the ability to, to earn, putting them in a position to um, fall under a rule that wasn't bargained by their union. There's so much more to this than just, you know, screw the union, get out. Um, it's not, I wish life was that simple. It's not. Well, and it's not a, I mean, as you mentioned, this is not a, this is not a grassroots movement. This is not a, you know, a bunch of, a bunch of people kind of raising their arms and saying they're mad as hell. This is organized and this is funded. This is funded. Oh, absolutely. It's coming. Um, I mean, let's talk about this. Let's talk about contract firefighters. And um, we're, I'm on a working committee with the International on uh, iLocals or industrial locals. Right now, um, there's an uh, industrial local that are contract firefighters. And they're doing the job of the men and women that are sworn public safety officers in the state of California, and they're brought in through the U.S. Forest Service. They are replacing you. They are doing your work. And I will tell you this, that the federal government just led a contract for a group called Firestorm, which is based in Chico, $140 million over five years. And in their quote, that could potentially um, fund 600 firefighters. Men and women, I have said this. There are about 32,000 firefighters in the state of California, whether we're paid, 
paid call, volunteer, 100% for professional, but we earned that title. And what binds us together is we all took an oath of office and we raised our hand and we swore an oath to uphold the Constitution of the US, the state of California, and the rules and regulations of the municipalities we work for. If you don't meet those criteria, you are not a firefighter in the state of California, just like a security guard is not a police officer. I don't know why anybody is willing to accept that, and we as a profession damn well shouldn't accept it because men and women, Folks like this are coming for us. Right. Well, and they're and they are you know these companies have been very opportunistic in, in in recent years because of the fire issues that we face in California to to wheedle their way in where they perhaps didn't have a have a foothold before. Now they have a foothold and they're lower paid. They don't have the same they they don't have the same benefits as you said. They don't have the same they don't have the same uh, uh, um, training uh, experience. And, and they're putting union jobs at risk. A absolutely. And they're taking um, potential union jobs out of play. And, you know, if you, men and women, if you think about it, um, many of you probably, when I'll mention the city of Placentia, you may not know what I'm talking about. I would implore you to get on the internet or talk to uh, a member of Local 3631 in leadership in Orange County Fire and ask about that, or Cala Mesa um, uh, and talk to a nine, uh, Local 935 member, Jimmy Gregoli, the president of, and he has been on me for two years, and he's right from day one. Um, these groups um, are coming for your job. You know, back back when when I was a young firefighter in the 80s, it was Wackenhut. It was Rural Metro. And here's the big difference. They were, in their efforts, they were unorganized. They were under or with no funds. They were absolutely a fringe element. And they were held at bay. Although they did get a contract here and there, Estero, Florida, uh, rural Metro um, succeeded in, uh, or at least for a time in uh, Arizona, which is a right to work state. Um, and I know that they gained a little bit of a foothold um, in other parts of California. But they in, in a lot of these places, they wound up failing. They died away. And the difference today is um, people have figured out that natural disaster in the state of California is a cash cow, whether it is to do preventative work or cleanup work and the actual work. And, you know, I've heard it all. You know, um, the, the retire, you know, um, I'll lose my retirement if I don't vote this way. I'll lose my benefits if I don't vote this way or my salary. Or, you know, it's more important to be an American... Um, than it is to be a firefighter or a union member. And I get all that. And, and I'm as red, white, and, and blue as they come. Um, but I'm telling you, if you're a firefighter in the state of California and you think that you are immune to some of the things that have gone on in this station, not only are you wrong, they're already here. And whether they spread or not, 
depends upon the strength of your union. It really does. These groups are already operating in California. You're going to see them in the fire season. Um, you know, fire departments are understaffed. It, I, and I, for the life of me, it's just there's that's a whole other discussion. But um, we haven't recovered. We haven't recovered um, from the the economic crisis in the first decade of this millennium, this century, and we're still behind the eight ball. And there are private companies that pay less, benefit less and have less committed firefighters than you that'll come in here and take your place at the snap of a finger. And I'm not trying to scare anybody. I'm trying to be as truthful as I can. I see it and work with this every single day. You know, I'm on a committee at the international level that's trying to figure out and wanting to unionize these folks. I got a hard time with that. I have a hard time with a company that can be headquartered in um, Idaho, Montana, South Dakota, North Dakota, Tennessee, Kentucky, and come in here and leave with either California or federal tax dollars from California for the work that we provide. Mm -hmm. And if that doesn't strike a chord with you, then maybe it's time for me to go. You know, but I don't I don't believe it is, but it just it just should. It's men and women. We didn't get to where we got to because you ride big red and you do a cool job. We are here because of hard work of generations of union firefighters, trade union firefighter leaders, the Dan Terry's, the Al Whitehead's, the Lou Paulson's, the Dick Mayberry's, the Dallas Jones the Ron Satoffs. That's why we're here. His men that worked and paved this road for every guy out there, whether you got one year on the job, five, 10, 15, these are all names you'll never know. And, and some of these folks aren't even, well, most of, some of them aren't even with us anymore. But you have what you have today because we took a profession that was underpaid, overworked in the number of hours, our safety um, uh, laws and standards and our work laws and standards were horrible. They were abysmal. And we changed this into a professional organization, the California Fire Service. And people just think that happened. It didn't just happen. And we will lose it faster than we attained it. Mark my words on that. Our job is to make sure that when you go to work, as much as we possibly can, your wife at least has a sigh that the health and safety laws um, are there, they're trained. If something happens, I'm gonna be taken care of, our kids are gonna be taken care of. And when you go to work, you can go, Union's got my back. If something happens to me, they're pushing on workers' comp laws. They're pushing on survivor benefits. They're pushing on safety benefits. They're pushing on the best PPE. Um, you know, that, that's what this is about. It's not about your political party or my political party. It's about doing the work for the members. And you may not like who we have to work with, 
to achieve some of these goals. But it goes back to this. You got to know the field you're playing in. And you don't always get to deal the field or choose it. Sometimes it's chosen for you. And to be effective, you have to work in that field with, with the players or the cards that are dealt. That's what's important. To me, all the other stuff is noise. Well, um, it's been a, a pleasure uh, kind of going over some of, the, some of the recent issues with you. Brian will be back in a couple of weeks with another edition of CPF Firewire. Thanks for joining us. You can find CPF Firewire at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Podbean, or wherever you find podcasts. Be sure to subscribe so you'll never miss an episode. You can also find CPF Firewire at the CPF website, www.cpf.org, and on the CPF YouTube page. We're always interested in getting your feedback, comments, and criticism. Tell us what you'd like to hear about. Drop us a line, info at cpf.org. CPF Firewire is a production of California Professional Firefighters. Our producer is Carol Wills. Our engineer is Matt McDermott. Please join us next month for another edition of CPF Firewire.